0: Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia
1: you tend to have in public hospitals in China is large concentrations of people so much so that for a doctor in a public hospital you might see a 100 consultations a day with those consultations lasting 2 minutes It
2: feels as though the burden on you to make the right decision about who you see and where you spend your money can lead to an increased sense of frustration and distrust in the system when you as a health consumer basically shoulder the burden of risk.
0: In this episode, how healthy is China's healthcare system? Here to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia research specialist at the University of Melbourne. As China's economy has grown, so too has its healthcare system, notching up some impressive achievements in how it cares for its more than 1.3 billion people. But with increasing affluence comes greater expectation, along with a growing divide between those who can afford the best treatment and those who can't. So, in a country where rural poverty sits in the shadows of rapid economic development, how does the Chinese government prioritise the provision of healthcare? How do ordinary Chinese navigate the medical system with its assortment of public and private institutions and insurance plans? And how do issues such as access and equity fit with the socialist aims of the Chinese Communist Party? To examine the current state and future direction of healthcare in China, we're joined by Asia historian and long-time China watcher, Dr. Lewis Mayo from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne, and Dr. Jane Brophy, a medical sociologist and author. Welcome back to Ear to Asia, Lewis, and welcome to the podcast, Jane. Thanks, Ali. Thank you. Let's begin with a sort of state of play of China's healthcare system, if you like, a system which has to service well over 1.3 billion people What does it look like, Lewis?
1: All right, well, as a historian, I'm going to start historically. And we can look, of course, at the larger story of China's revolutionary transformation in the 20th century, and in particular, the consequences of the founding of the People's Republic of China, uh, which was established in 1949 after the victory of the Chinese Communist Party against its rival, the Chinese Nationalist Party, which then fled to Taiwan. And that was a party pledging to... ...liberate the Chinese masses from the backwardness of feudalism and from the oppression of capitalism, and it would do that through radical socialist revolution. One of its beliefs was that all Chinese people, including the poorest, were entitled to health care and that this should not be on a class basis... And so it set about a process of transforming radically the healthcare system. Um, Of course, under the previous regime, there had been limited state capacity to provide modern types of hospitals. Most of the population was reliant on traditional Chinese medicine for its healthcare needs. Um, And that the Chinese system under Mao saw the spread on a broad basis of a basic health care system, uh, which was, in theory, free. The state, as we know, uh, recorded great success in industrialising China, um, but was also presided over the largest famine in human history. Uh, and it also recorded substantial improvements in life expectancy through that period. But there was a rigid system of control of population movement, people living in the countryside who got health care supplied by the local system of clinics, and in particular, um, basic level healthcare from what were called barefoot doctors who were essentially kind of public health nurses. That system, I suppose, also coincided with an immunisation programme that reduced a lot of chronic Diseases. So you had a system essentially at that period of subsidized healthcare in the cities for people with government jobs, which was everybody who was living in the cities, and then some healthcare in the countries. Now, when Mao Zedong died in 1976, the government shifted its healthcare strategy quite substantially. And in the period between the 1970s and the early 2000s, there was, I suppose, what we would call privatisation of the healthcare system and the phenomenon of universal healthcare for free disappeared, being replaced by a system essentially of the healthcare burdens falling substantially on the ordinary citizens to pay for.
0: So, Jane, today in China, what does that mean in practice if someone is sick, if someone has a a chronic condition, if someone needs treatment? Well, I think it differs from person to person and also depending on whether
2: you're in an urban or rural location and to what extent you're covered by medical insurance and what type of medical insurance. You know, to provide a scenario, one of the most common would be that you would show up to a hospital seeking to see a specialist that you've decided is probably the person best equipped to assess your condition. What it looks like to walk into a foyer of a major metropolitan hospital is To use this analogy of a train station is that you've got these ginormous boards with numbers and what you're seeing there is what number of specialists are in the hospital that day. And so if you're walking in and hoping to see an oncologist and there's only two oncologists there that day, you might be the hundredth person in line. So there's no
0: appointment system?
2: No, it's basically a ticketing system. And as long as it's not an emergency, then, you know, the first real question is what will my insurance cover? What can I afford to access? And could I maybe compromise by uh, going to a traditional Chinese medical clinic uh, just in your local suburb or a pharmacy, which uh, there's usually someone who may have the capacity to assess your condition and give you some kind of over-the-counter medication, but 90% of healthcare is provided in hospital-based environments. I think on a very general level, it's quite a bewildering experience to navigate on one's own, and I think this adds to this sense of chaos. I think it feels as though the burden on you to make the right decision about who you see and where you spend your money can lead to an increased sense of frustration and distrust in the system when you as a health consumer basically shoulder the burden of risk. The residential registration system, if your residency is designated in a particular county and that doesn't have advanced hospital services, then that limits your capacity to access the kinds of treatment that others in richer counties might do. Lewis, I think you've broken down some of these categories with um, a bit more clarity.
1: That, that 95% of the population since you know, roughly 10 years ago has had health insurance. It's a health insurance system, and this health insurance is divided essentially to a system for the rural population, and two types of system for urban residents.
0: But, but who pays for that? Is that government subsidised? It's Is that...
1: government subsidised largely, but roughly 30% of costs of medical visits on average in China are paid for out of pocket by the patient, which compares to around 10% uh, here in Australia.
2: Even that is dependent on where you are registered as a resident. So if you're seeking treatment outside of the area that you are registered to, then that limits whether you are entitled to reimbursement for your medical
0: costs. And indeed, a large proportion of the consultations are actually in hospitals, aren't they? There's no real general practitioner
1: network? The state has attempted to kind of create a system of what they call community health centres, but the uptake of those services and trust in those services is very much lower than trust in large hospitals. So 90% of people with any kind of illness will show up at a hospital. Now, In the Mao years, of course, in the countryside, there was a a tiered system in which, you know, if you had a serious illness, eventually you would kind of climb up through the hierarchy to that. That's broken down. And so what you tend to have is large concentrations of people seeking uh, anything from just what we would have a GP consultation for to, you know, serious illnesses in public hospitals, so much so that you might see 100 consultations a day for a doctor in a public hospital with those consultations lasting two minutes in some cases. And it's
2: also, if you want to talk more literally about what that looks like, through the course of my research, I've spent time in various hospitals, in various rural and urban locations, but... One of the common features is just the sheer number of people occupying that space. You know, I can remember visiting a a neurosurgical specialised ward. There are people who had come from far and wide to seek out a particular specialist and were waiting days camped out on pieces of cardboard just to be able to see this specialist most likely out of pocket without their social support network because they're away from their rural environment. So So it can look very chaotic, both administratively and also in terms
0: of the movement of people and services. And what does that mean for the general health of the population, which as China, as we said in the introduction, as China has become more wealthy, so it has made great improvements in people's longevity and in the health of the Chinese population. But Is that level of improvement being maintained?
1: Well, it's interesting to look at where China sits in terms of its global profile. Longevity increases, improved very, very quickly during the the Mao years. But flattened out, and a major American political scientist working on this topic, uh, Yenzong Huang, um, has observed that if you compare the improvement in life expectancy with The level of China's economic growth, it's actually not as substantial an improvement as you might expect. And he believes that there are structural problems that cause this. Um, The state is spending more on healthcare, the number of visits to hospitals are increasing. But much of the evidence suggests that discontent with the supply and the quality of uh, medical care in China, particularly in the cities, is substantial.
0: And Jane, tell us what that discontent looks like, because you've been in China and you've, you've witnessed it.
2: Yes, well, so this was in 2010. I was living in Kunming, which is capital of Yunnan province in southwest China. Uh, it's one of the poorest provinces in China. I didn't witness this firsthand, but I think that at that time I only came to know about it because I had access to the local press. I don't think that these kinds of events were being reported outside of China. There was one private hospital that... Most resembled what you would find in an advanced Western medical system, and that was considered where you would go if you had the money and did not want to get involved in the local publicly-administrated hospital system. So seemingly out of nowhere, a very angry family had occupied the lobby of this hospital and managed to shut down basically all but the very critical care services and vandalised the lobby. So this went on for five days with the local police in attendance but not really
0: curtailing. So they were angry with the treatment of a member of their family?
2: Yes, so it took a little time for the story to unravel and, and for us to make sense of what had happened. So a woman had died during childbirth but this was concealed by the doctors, from family members, and they weren't told until 7pm the following day. I believe once this became more widely known that more and more family members showed up, something that is now spoken about as in-out, translated roughly as hospital-based disturbances, it's becoming an increasing phenomenon um, and it's now becoming
0: a studied phenomenon. So, so these hospital-based disturbances, is it uh, frustrated families blaming doctors, Lewis? Is it frustrated families blaming government? I mean, where is the blame being put? And what does it say about the status of mm. doctors? Well,
1: the surveys on this topic uh, suggest very low levels of public respect for doctors. The case that Jane mentioned in Yunnan in 2010 is symptomatic of a common phenomenon whereby the the police don't actually aid in the uh, in the assistance of the doctors and assaults on doctors. You know are very common, and that internet talk is sympathetic, often to those who've suffered some kind of medical disadvantage, shall we say and rather than with the doctors themselves. And indeed, in the statistics on medical disputes in China, and there is no system for satisfactory uh, resolution, I guess, of you know, malpractice issues, overwhelmingly, the findings have been in favour, actually, of the patients rather than of the doctors. And uh, research that's even been published in The Lancet and other places like that points to a declining commitment of both Chinese parents to medical training for their children and low retention rates for doctors in the system.
0: So very different, Jane, from a, and this is obviously generalising, but from a Western perspective where doctors are right up there with the engineers and the lawyers.
2: Well, in China, the engineers and the scientists are the people to aspire towards being. Given that the last 30 or more years, the government has been populated by by technocrats
1: or, or themselves engineers in industrializing contexts that didn 't have socialist revolution, uh, if you sort of Japan, Taiwan, Thailand, etc, what you generally have is uh, a medical profession arising as part of the middle class or part of the establishment along with a legal profession that 's in parallel now in China and in the Soviet Union, neither the lawyers nor the doctors. Had that kind of position because the states were dominated by these highly militarized revolutionary industrialization cadres, um, in both the sense of a body of people, and so because the state is putting its emphasis on that big construction project and seeing the working class as very much um, a class of, in a sense, steel workers, if you like, um, there's not the social basis for that bargaining power that doctors have socially.
0: Given the, the stresses that we've been talking about that have already led to these occasions of violence and obviously enormous frustration Put into that, of course, is the fact that China has an ageing, a rapidly ageing population, and it also has an increase in chronic illness. Mm -hmm. So what does that do to a system that is already under stress?
1: Well, I mean, China's healthcare performance is comparable to a lot of middle income countries, which is still where it sits. And that's therefore not an inherently destabilising force in the population. What's interesting, I think, is that in terms of how far medical issues get politicized is a question of well who will take up those questions and turn them into political ones and there i think returning to that question of shifting from a an idea of working class revolution to an idea of population quality there are a lot of things that i suppose locate health issues as part of family life rather than perhaps as being part of social problems the state tends to see them as things that hopefully, can either administer its way out of by refining policy um, strategies, or else that through technological improvement, it will be able to take the problem away. And so, in this sense, it's not a politicised question, at least from the state's point of view. And arguably, it's difficult for the population really to mobilise around those sorts of questions, because there isn't any political infrastructure for it, do
2: that. One way to think about the politicisation of ageing and the care of the ageing population, there's an economist, Lauren Johnson, who did a comparative study of Australia and China to distill the concept. She argues that China became old before it became rich, whereas Australia became rich before it got old or the population aged. When you have a poor country that hasn't had a particularly good healthcare system for a while, there are many kind of low-cost ways of taking care of ageing bodies. And uh, anyone who's ever been to China will know about what I refer to as elderly playgrounds. The use of public space um, to keep older people fit, to exercise, to take care of their nutrition. So these are very low cost ways of thinking about caring for ageing bodies. Whereas in Australia, by the time we had to deal with an issue of an ageing population, there was already the provision for thinking about it in terms of high tech and high cost medical solutions. In that sense, It may well be that the ageing population in China is not considered
0: as much of a financial burden as it is in Australia. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by Asia historian Dr Lewis Mayo and medical sociologist Dr Jane Brophy. We're talking about the current state and future direction of healthcare in China. And Lewis, I know that you said that from a state's point of view, it's not a politicised question, but... How important is health and longevity and equitable access to healthcare to the Chinese government? Where does it sit in how the government derives its legitimacy? Because it's a question applicable to all countries, you know, citizens' quality of life and government ability to deliver.
1: Well, it is and it isn't a politicised issue. What I was suggesting, I think, is that because the overall shift in the history of the People's Republic of China occurs more or less with the death of Mao Zedong with a movement from a narrative of class and revolution to a narrative of the improvement of the population, then of course, once you've got a narrative of the improvement of population, you are answerable to that notion.
2: And this rejuvenation of the Chinese population has been a central tenet of Mm. Xi Jinping's And is that tied to healthcare? It's tied to everything, really. Um, But I guess you can think about it in a very... Somatic way of mm. physically rejuvenating the Chinese population as well as in all other sectors of civil
1: society. I mean I think it's indicative of the fact that if you don't read the specialist literature on this topic, um you probably just concentrate on the fact that yes, there is an increase in the longevity of the Chinese population, yes, there is an increase in coverage for insurance. Yes, there is an increase in government investment. All of these things are true, and that may, in fact, just be enough to keep people satisfied with the issue, because it's only if you're starting to look comparatively that you might start to raise questions about these issues. That said, it's interesting that I think that the most significant challenge that the Chinese state has faced Uh, organised challenge to its power since the Tiananmen incident in 1989 came from the Falun Gong religious movement and one explanation for the expansion of that movement was that many of its adherents believed that participation in the rituals of the Falun Gong movement would solve medical problems, and that, that one motivation for their engagement with it was the collapse, essentially, of the older system of socialised medicine. So it has been a political challenge to the state in recent times, but that's more than 20 years years ago.
0: If we look today and we look at the rise in medical disturbances and we look at the increasingly ageing population, the rise in chronic illnesses, to what extent do people, they may not respect doctors, but to what extent do people regard the government as responsible for their care and to what extent is an inability to access that care going to undermine government legitimacy? Just as many have always argued that that legitimacy is built on a continuing betterment of people's lives and that's been economic, but to what extent does that also become longevity, health and quality of life?
1: Well, one interesting thing, of course, is the sense of Division within the Chinese population between those people historically connected with the countryside and those connected with lives in modern cities. Now, all of the research suggests that inequalities in the Chinese healthcare system are substantial and that those at the top of the structure. Well, they may have anger about the supply and the speed of the delivery of hospital-type services, but since the death of Mao, the sense that the peasant population is a burden upon the advanced sector of Chinese society has been quite pervasive amongst members of the middle class. If you think about the one-child family policy, the urban population subscribed to that quite readily. Um, resistance to it in the cities was not great. And it was primarily the rural population which was reliant on extra family members for welfare purposes who violated it. So you essentially had a divided conception of the society over issues of, well, who was acting responsibly in the name of the nation's development.
0: So do you think this extends to healthcare, that there is a sense that actually, you know, it's, it's your responsibility
2: Yeah, so I would say that during the 80s and 90s and the systematic defunding and move towards market-based medical systems, to some extent that has reduced expectations about what the government can and should provide. And I think the large number of private companies that now dispense medical services is indicative of that, um, that people are looking outside of the government-funded systems to get the kind of treatment that they want if they can afford it.
1: I mean, it's interesting to think what the reference points for, I suppose, members of the middle and upper middle classes are in China. And I mean, some of them may be looking at the United States and saying, well, there's a level of dysfunction and their healthcare (laughs) system that's remarkably similar, but they might also look at Japan or Taiwan. Or South Korea, you know, countries that, you know, are wealthier and have much more equitable distributions of healthcare resources. And this may force some of those people to ask those questions about whether or not the supply of these things is really sufficient. But statistically, China looks a lot like a middle income country around the world. And as we know, in those sorts of countries Anyone who can afford it gets their healthcare overseas. So there can be situations in which the political push for improvement of collective healthcare is limited. On the other hand, my colleagues at the university and the Asia Institute who are interested in the question of the rise of philanthropy and of charity work in China point to the growth of that sector as something, and indeed the improvement of health and education conditions for the very poor, is something that looms quite large in the lives of certain members of the middle class and in the cities in China, and that it may be that the state in a sect encourages that style of development, in a sense remarkably similar to what conservatives in the United States would want to see with their healthcare system.
2: And I guess... Another major phenomenon is Dr. Google, so turning to the internet to self-diagnose or seek out options that have not been offered to them in the conventional system. And there was an interesting case a couple of years ago. A young woman named Wei Zixin took to the internet. She'd been diagnosed with a rare form of cancer and she... As a result of pursuing non-standard treatment that she'd found on the internet, um, she died and there was this massive outcry from Chinese netizens who were outraged that there wasn't enough regulation of the internet in China, which I think runs counter to the narrative of what people outside of China think that there's too much control of the internet. But in this instance...
0: Chinese people expected to be protected from
2: what well, actually. Um, and when,
0: when, when you talk Dr. about Doctor Google, I guess being expected to be protected. I mean, as well as issues of access and and equity, there's also a massive issue of trust, isn't mm-hmm. there, in the Chinese healthcare system? I think contaminated mm-hmm. uh, medicines, faulty vaccines, all those mm-hmm. sorts of things that seem to regularly make the headlines.
2: Yes, and this has also led to a, a major demand for Australian pharmaceuticals and
0: vitamins, so foreign produced products and services. But does that also lead to calls for tighter regulation of the system in China?
1: I think, I think yes, it does. Yeah. <laughs> that Certainly the sense that there's, I mean, a long history of concern about quackery. This is interesting, again, in thinking about the Chinese state's response to the Falun Gong movement. It was understood as essentially part of a long history of, in a sense, feudal backwardness within the system. And so when you have a what the historians would call a scientistic state, a state that basically says that it is affiliated with science and modernity, it often constructs itself in opposition to the past and to traditional practices. But I think this also um, spills over into a belief that the state has a responsibility to protect citizens from being misled. There's that dimension in addition to just questions about poor regulation of medicines and other problems with pollution and food safety and things like that that are of concern to the middle class.
0: Lewis and Jane, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Ali. Thank you. Our guests have been Asia historian Dr Lewis Mayo from Asia Institute and medical sociologist Dr Jane Brophy. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. and Of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 13th of February 2019. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne.
1: I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.